where capitalist profit, quote unquote, or interest comes from, and why the worker and landlord only pay. It. <clears throat> now, so this, is, this is just pure. This is even in a world of certainty. This is even in no change, no risk. The second thing, of course, the capitalist realizes is uh, he pays the money now and takes the risk. In a real world of certainty, you have a situation where uh, you, know, you produce the asshole car, nobody buys it, or whatever. So, so there's a tremendous risk. And the, the entrepreneur or businessman becomes the major uncertainty bearer. The worker and the landlord get the money now, or relieved of this uncertainty. They get the payment right now, and the, the entrepreneur takes upon himself the shoulders the burden of this uncertainty or the risk. So what you have then is a return on capital, a business return, is divided at least conceptually into two parts. There's long run profit or normal natural profit or natural interest, which is you know, something like 8% or whatever it is. Uh, again, it's very difficult to spot it empirically. Okay? It's a natural interest of time preference. And there's a profit for su successful forecasting, pure profit, it's called. Plus losses or minus losses if the guy who has the entrepreneur. Okay. So this is the risk component, the uncertainty component of the profit, pure profit and loss, which is sort of on top of it's a vector on top of the natural rate of interest. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I think it's a useful analysis. Even though know, we never get the final equilibrium, by talking about equilibrium where there's no there's no change or no uncertainty, we can then separate out conceptually what the capitalist return will be on pure time preference and what it is on profit and risk and uncertainty. So that's the, the analysis, the illustrative analysis of where this uh, returns in capital come from. Uh, Orthodox economics is more, sort of grudgingly accepted some of the time preference, but not very much. Certainly not this time market analysis. Um, um, <coughs> um, wow, so the... the um, the fact that the cost curves are not the same is that you can't prove the tangency at all by I think is uh, uh, enough to scuttle the uh, perfect competition people. Uh, and also the fact that there never is a situation, we're never in equilibrium. That's another interesting point. And so in the real world, there's always profits and losses and whatever, and there's no way you can compare tangencies if there ain't no tangencies. Even, well, even if there were smooth curves, it would be somewhere like here. Whatever. And nothing can be proved one way or the other. <coughs> Uh, one interesting thing, the ones around cost curves, uh, <coughs> is that <coughs> the uh, I like to deal with total cost and total revenue anyway, because I think it's, it's more it makes more sense as average stuff. But at any rate, the uh, the cost curve is defined. You have a usual total cost curve. Something like you start with zero. If you produce nothing, it doesn't cost you anything. You know, like if you're not in business. So usually the cost curve is depicted as something like that. Um, it's a total cost. What happens, this, this assumes, of course, I mean, if you take any given production, you're producing 10,000 loaves of Wonder Bread, the possible costs are infinite. And if you want to keep raising your cost, you can do it. So what this is really is, is an envelope of the minimum total cost, of what, what, what's the absolute minimum that you can, you can produce the stuff for. So you, because of your, prop, your returns, your profits, uh, is equal to total revenue minus total cost. You're interested in keeping the difference as high as possible <coughs> and uh, getting the total cost as low as possible. So what you have is sort of a whole bunch of possible costs. And the market economy forces 
businessmen, so to speak, to keep them as low as possible. However, yes, we can have a firm which is not, doesn't have these rigors of the free market. Take, for example, a firm which specializes in government contracts. There's a very different situation now, of course. The government contracts, at least in the United States, are so-called cost-plus contracts. Uh, <clears throat> okay, fella, you want to buy paper clips from you, or dams, or missiles, or whatever it happens to be, we will pay you cost, whatever your cost is, plus guaranteed profit of 8% or 10% or whatever. Now notice what this means. Cost plus means any cost, any cost which would be in any way justified. Well, if it comes to your interest then for your cost to start ballooning upward, if, you, if you're a business and you want your cost to balloon upward, it's very easy to do it. Very easy. Just let them float. And the government, the taxpayer, you know, pays up the difference, gives you a guaranteed margin of profit on top of that. What the hell? Why not? And so you have all sorts of things happening where um, in war contract and defense contract firms, there's so-called hoarding of labor. Okay. Uh, if you need, if you're an engineering firm, if you're producing stuff from the U.S. government, if you really need, if you're a private firm, let's say you hire 50 engineers, why not hire 150? What the hell? You may as well keep them 100 sitting around idly and then have a peak week where they all work like man and sick, drop back to playing poker the other 51 weeks a year. Because the cost that you pay for them can be just incorporating the, the bill that you give to the Pentagon or the, whatever other department of government. They'll pay you the guaranteed cost plus the profit. So the cost then, talking about wasted resources, I mean, these people are worrying about the contingency on the cost curve. This is the real, <laughs> the real problem. And uh, <clears throat> so this is, this is, the, <laughs> this is the, the problem of cost where the thing, where you can do all sorts of stuff. You can, for example, usually in the paper for engineers, <clears throat> full page ads are taken out. We want engineers in California. Uh, well, these ads you see are recouped by the government. Was, this, this is a reasonable cost. You can show the press department, hey, we need advertising for engineers, and just recoup it. So why not? You know, sky's the limit. Anything which, you, which the suckers in the government can will grant you, you'll include as part of your cost. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the cozy interaction. I've talked about antitrust lawyers before, that the, the Pentagon, for example, retire at full pay, whatever it is, an insane amount after 20 years' service. General, you then become uh, vice president in charge of procurement, charge of sales, sorry, for Lockheed or Boeing or something, selling the same planes and missiles to your old buddies in the defense department. And this is a sort of recirculating thing. And uh, this is everybody washes everybody <coughs> back for arrangement, except for the taxpayer, the consumer, whatever else you can back. <coughs> Any comments on this? Sure. Do you have a similar analysis for the medical profession? Mm. Yeah. Because, uh, like, I'm involved in, in uh, medical insurance yeah. and stuff. Yeah. It seems to me that it's not for any given procedure it's cost plus, although to some extent mm. it is. It's just a question of mm. the, the, once you have a <coughs> right. different set of people paying for mm. things, as they get into yeah. benefits, then, then you get very strange effects. Absolutely. The, uh, there seems to be no limit on the demand as far as the, uh, as far as the medical profession is concerned and uh, whatever they bill is paid and, and the, the cost to the uh, consumers is very low. Precisely. You just hit it. The, you look at the, the inflation record and so forth, you see the last year's 5% or something, medical costs 15%. Medical is always skyrocketing, much higher than regular inflation rates. Why is that? Well, you have two things going on. Uh, it's not quite the same. It all, it all washes out. It just says that the 
third-party cost um, supply. This is since 1910 in the United States. Supply is severely restricted by the government. It's each state government coordinated by the federal government. So yeah, this is the man curve, the supply curve. Supply is pushed way up or to the left. This is the real problem of monopoly. There's all the nonsense about cost curve of General Motors. This is the push way up because the government steps in and excludes people from being doctors. Very simple operations, licensing, so licensing requirement, especially in primary licensing hospitals. <coughs> um, the um, requirement comes in, you can only be a doc practicing, practicing physician if, you're, if you were graduated from a certified hospital or certified medical school. And the government, I think what happened is in 1910, this whole thing swept in, uh, 1910 to 14, the government put out of business, the state government of the United States put out of business literally half the hospitals in the country, half the medical schools in the country. Like that, you're not qualified. You're under, under you're, 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 you're deficient, etc., etc. The AMA, helped. AMA, right? Well, the whole thing is put through by AMA in collaboration with government, <coughs> and the state, like New York State, for example, will turn over, turns over the New York State has a hospital licensing board, where they call it. They staff it with AMA people. They ask the AMA to staff it. AMA, of course, is very happy to do this. <laughs> And uh, they put on these crazy requirements. They, they cut the quota. Each medical school have a severe, severe quota. They'll only, you know, whatever. They only have 40% of the doctors will apply, and admitted, and all that, all that sort of stuff. If people want to be in med medical school and admitted. They cut the number of doctors enormously, cut the number of hospitals. And, um, and of course, as you know, time goes on very, very quickly, supplies cut severely to the left, and the price goes up. <coughs> and. Uh, <coughs> And, a, and when the physicians were pushing for this, they admitted it. They said, this is, this is an economic problem, not just a medical problem. You need more the doctors are not getting a sufficient standard of living. I don't know what sufficient was the mean. Sufficient to what they would like to become accustomed. And so sure enough, uh, the, the number of doctors per person in the United States is now half of what it was in 1910, whatever. And the whole, yeah, this, this whole thing follows. And um, the, uh, interestingly enough, <coughs> the parts of the medical profession which are the most restrictive the most monopolistic, in that sense, are those most tied to hospitals. Uh, so that the more hospital-oriented the doctor is, the more monopoly gains he's getting. Uh, surgeons, for example, of course, totally hospital-oriented. They're getting most of the benefit. If you look at the guys who run the American Medical Association, Association they're all surgeons. Why are they all surgeons? They're surgeons are better people. I mean, you know, how come they're no internists or dermatologists? Uh, they're all surgeons because the surgeons are the guys who are getting a lion's share of this. Stuff. They're hospital. They're totally based on the hospital, and access to the hospital is the key. The other hand, psychoanalysts who hardly have anything to do with hospitals are much less monopolistic. They have much less this kind of supply curve cut to the left, shift to the left. And one of the things that being hospital oriented does, by the way, is that you're allowed to price discriminate. There's nothing wrong with price discrimination necessarily, but surgeons, for example, can do that because there's no competition, very little competition. Price discriminate meaning you find out what the take you know, for any given appendix operation, you find out what the income of the guy is and you sock them uh, accordingly. So the wealthy patient pays much more through the nose, through the appendix than for the middle class patient. <laughs> a psychoanalyst doesn't do that because they have not the hospital orientation. It may be a little bit, it's peanuts or dentists. I mean, and dentists essentially the same price for every, every patient. They haven't got the opportunity to, for this hospital monopoly. <coughs> 
Uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's one one thing. And then, of course, as you said, the demand curve thing. But, but medical insurance, either governmental or private, third-party insurance, the insurer insurer pays repays any medical cost plus except for hundred dollars, whatever it is. They repay anything. Doctor charges. Well, how do you have it? Like an unlimited inside demand curve. It's heaven for the doctor, right? Charge of anything, the insurance company pays off. What the hell? Patient doesn't care. Got insurance, and so as a result, people are not insured. A few people here and there, the interstices of society get the, get, get, get the, get the shaft. Oh, the insurance companies can only pay what they take in, so it's everybody's getting the shaft. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> they distribute the costs. In fact, uh, you, you get situations where uh, I remember doctors telling me at 2 o'clock in the morning on yeah. Saturday night, people come into the outpatient areas of a hospital. Because they're sunburned, and he sprays them with Novocaine. He says, "Why didn't you go to the drugstore and get a can of Sovacaine? That's all you needed." Mm -hmm. They say that costs four dollars. This is free. Exactly right. They have so-called shortage of hospitals coming in. Exactly, it's the same, the same stuff. Um, another thing that happened when, they, when the half the medical schools were put out of business, uh, there was there was a warfare within the medical profession, so-called allopathy in those days, and and homeopaths and others. The allopaths have now, of course, taken over, or now are medicine, uh, took the opportunity, not, by the way, coincidentally, to, to, to totally crush the, the homeopaths. Most of the, of the medical schools put out of business were homeopath medical schools. And, uh, well, it's sort of interesting. I don't know, doesn't it? It's only tangential. But the uh, homeopath I find fairly lovable. I, 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 I'm not going to take side between them. Homeopath is certainly much more lovable. Because. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, they obviously can't hurt anybody. I mean, even the allopaths sort of admit that. In other words, you go to the homeopaths. The only people around are the only homeopaths are either European immigrants who but still have homeopaths here. Yeah. And people over the age of eighty. Yeah. There's yeah. an article we have about <coughs> ten of them left in Ontario. And yeah. Um, much of them are retired. Yeah. And, uh, what is a homeopath? Well, extremely low. Basically, they give very very small doses of yeah. things, and they they attempt to. Uh, they tend to give what the body needs, small doses yeah. and only one dose. Teeny, the very teeny. Well, here's the thing. So you go into the homeopath. Homeopath has got millions of different little, little bottles. I know this elderly lady from Austria who's <laughs> went to the homeopath. Has the, 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 little teeny little bottles and teeny little doses, all right? The, and, and the homeopath sits there and talks to you over the late life because you're, the theory is that your personality, on each different personality gets different Herbs, different homeopathic things. So it means have to, the doctor has to spend a lot of time with you, which is refreshing in itself. Okay. So, <laughs> just say, okay, take three doses of this and you know, come back in two weeks. You gotta sit and talk to you and say, you know, are you a nervous type or are you optimistic or whatever? And according to your personality type, it gives you the little teeny, little, different teeny little herbs. A teeny, a teeny little herbs obviously can't hurt. It's pretty clear. You know, even the allopaths admit that. They just say, it's a racket because it doesn't help anybody. Well, a lot of people say they're helped by it. Who am I to say they're not helped by it? And um, also, it's very almost costless because you get this damn thing. The teeny little bottles, I mean, you know, five bucks worth of a teeny little bottle takes five years of treatment. So there's practically no, almost zero cost for the, for the, for the medicine. And pharmacists hate it. And, and even more than that, they're cheap because they're natural herbs. You know, to pick them out of the ground or something like that. They're very cheap. They're teeny doses and they're cheap. And whereas the allopath specializes in synthetic drugs, which are extremely expensive, have to be manufactured by drug companies. Okay. 
So you have a whole different economic culture involved here. The, the, the allopath, go to an allopath, make for example, I know a friend of mine, I've seen a few years, they had diabetes quite severely, and got a heavy dose of insulin. <coughs> he went to an old homeopath, as there are only old homeopaths. The guy said, here's the book, he said, here's this little, this little bottle, okay, and it's five years worth of doses. Throw away the insulin, because this will help, this will cure you. And they throw away the insulin, been in great shape ever since. I'm not saying this will work for every diabetic. I'm saying it costs them next to nothing. And one visit to the homeopathic, $3 for five years worth of stuff. So doctors hate it, drug companies hate it, people investing in drug companies hate it, pharmacists hate it. Right? So these people were put out, were literally put out of business at the time. In 1910, they were considered equally respectable in the allopath. It was a fierce competition for. And the, the allopaths then turned to the government, put these other guys out of business. Yeah. Am I right assuming the allopaths are like the regular doctors? Yeah, they're like what now called physicians. Right. Now, there's another aspect of this, which I'm particularly interested in being an econo being economist and interested in the economic aspect of history, <coughs> so to speak. Namely, who, <laughs> who benefits? I'm always interested in that question. Who benefits by government action, for example? Um, well, obviously, the allopaths benefit, but who else? Okay, you have a situation. The, the, the report comes in in 1910, the Flexner Report. Which said, uh, written by an extremely beloved figure named Dr. Abraham Flexner, who was not a physician or an, an, an educator. He, he then becomes, he writes this big report on medical education, saying, I'm putting out of business in a sense, because his advice was followed by all the state governments, put out of business by, uh, you know, put up as all the allopath and everybody else. So who was he? What, 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 how does he come? He was, a, he was a principal, he was a headmaster of some high school, okay? no, no training in medicine, no nothing. Why does he become the the guy who writes this big report, well, because he was, the report was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, especially the Rockefeller Foundation, and the, his brother, Dr. Simon Flexner, who was a doctor, was the head, one of the big shots of the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay? And we get the pattern begins to emerge, for those of us who were pattern-oriented. <laughs> or as a friend of mine says, I don't believe in the accidental theory of history. <laughs> I don't believe that life is random. So, <laughs> The, the Rockefeller family always has heavily invested in drug, drug companies, synthetic drug companies. They're very heavily invested in it. Right? The Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research poured an enormous amount of money into drug research. Right? That pulled something else, like Rockefeller Foundation or something. And then, so you have an interesting pattern where the, where the, where the, the allopaths <coughs> put the homeopaths out of business. The allopaths then specialize in, in Rockefeller drug company products. And uh, so that's, I think that's interesting. It's a pattern of, of uh, whatever business uh, medical cooperation through the government. It's cartelism. It's whatever. And so I think it works most of the time. As we get back to the discussion I had with Mary Lou last night about what respons what's responsible for statism. I don't think it's altruism. I think it's this sort of thing. It's precisely this sort of operation. We use the government to get patronage to put the other guys, your competitors, out of business and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's Known now as a government business partnership. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> that uh, that's uh, yeah. It's, uh, I should give you one more example. I realize it's tangential. It's a beautiful example. I love it. It's from uh, New York City milk problem. Okay. Uh, the early 1930s, we were in the Big Depression, and uh, those days most milk was sold by local farmers and local grocery stores, and they were they came in big in big. Uh, Cans, right? Huge cases. Uh, yeah. yeah. And they're poured out 
to the consumer. You go to the grocery store, a mom and pop store, it wasn't a supermarket, and the guy labels an app. You bring a bottle and give them, they went out the milk. There was also uh, Borden and Sheffield, who were the two bottle companies, bottle and milk. Borden and Sheffield cost about twice as much as the other milk, so called loose milk. Well, Borden, everybody was sort of suffering during the Depression. <clears throat> and the New York City Health Department uh, one day decided, nope, they said loose milk is, is unsafe. Um, we, we, have, we have spoken, it's unsafe. And the former say it's not unsafe, nobody's, nobody's been sick, you can't prove it. Well, we'll appoint a commission, committee. It's always a big thing. I know what it is here, probably the same thing. Appoint a committee, experts. Experts will decide whether loose milk is unsafe. They appoint a committee, a committee of seven people. I have at home, I have a little data on them. I'm fascinated by this. Uh, <clears throat> of the committee, one guy was a big shot of a boarding company, the other guy was a big shot of a Sheffield company. Three others were big shots of the Milbank Fund, independent truth-seeking foundation. When they meet for a few months, they come to the conclusion, Lucifer was unsafe, it's got to be outlawed, post-text, pronto. And the farmer's saying, no, no, it's ridiculous, you haven't included anything. And they said, look, the only thing you might possibly say is that the, the dipper that they dip in is not sterile. We're now working on a sterile dipper. In three months, we have a sterile dipper, and then you can't say anything. It's a too late, tough, <laughs> Lucifer was outlawed. Loose milk was outlawed in New York City. The price immediately doubled. The uh, supply curve goes <laughs> tremendously to the left. And the price doubles, and poor people can't afford the milk, etc. This is so-called New Deal. It's part of the, one of the aspects of the New Deal in the United States. Welfare state, in action. Beginnings of welfare state. So, <clears throat> okay, who's the Milbank Fund? You know about Gordon Milbank, and the New York City Health Department, probably to this day, has a record the, the, the heads of it and the vice chairman of it are always in and out of the Milbank Fund. In other words, the head of the New York City Health Department is the former vice president of the Milbank Fund. He's there for three years. He goes back to the Milbank Fund as president. That sort of thing. It's constant in and out. So who, who the heck is the Milbank Fund? Well, the Milbank Fund is wholly owned by the Borden Company, by the Borden people. Mr. Borden, Mr. Milbank, who was the owner of the Borden Company. Okay? So it ties it up in a neat little package. <laughs> so... <clears throat> So we have independent, objective, value-free research <laughs> coming at the inclusion of everybody, all the Borden competitors should be <laughs> turn out to be Borden people. Um, I told the story, I was, I was, there was a libertarian group about 10 years ago, Mount Sinai Medical School, which is a big shot medical school in New York. They asked me to, to lecture to the class on uh, medicine and government. So I was talking about all this stuff, about licensing. I never got to this little story about New York City, the little bank fund. I was telling the kids, the libertarian kids after I said, gee, this is a great story and so forth. I wish I had time to tell it. I said, gee, Professor Walker, we're glad you didn't tell it because everybody on the every every professor in the community medicine department, which is what the course was given, every professor in the community medicine department and outside is on payroll in the Milbank Fund. As of that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just a little window, a you know, microcosm of the way the world works has been. <laughs> Okay. Uh, how do we stop it? How do we stop it? Well, that's, that's not for discussion. No, that's, that's, a, yeah, that's the next course or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, right. it's sort of like the Clifford O'Dets play in the 30s, you know, a comedy play where they, they wind up and the, the, everybody in the audience, everybody on the stage is shouting at the audience, the last final act, strike, strike! <laughs> Everybody's supposed to rush out and strike. We okay. basically have a situation here where yeah. uh, <coughs> illegal chicken production was being clamped down on. 
And uh, now, of course, what you get, like, this is all the satellites and uh, microwave and all that. You've got capacity to, to, to co collaborate in, in the same cable. So you don't have to you have a whole bunch of different phone companies all using the same you know, common cable. That's, you know, well, you, you, know, you know what I've I really found yeah. interesting is that just in the past few years when they've let private companies sell telephones yeah. on the market, it's incredible how much the technology has improved. Yeah. In fact, it came to the point that, I mean, I have a, I have a small telephone that you yeah. just lay onto the table. It doesn't have a base or anything like that. Or yeah. Basically, uh, it just has a cord that goes to the, to the wall. And, and this thing is like, what was it? I think it was like twelve dollars at the very, very most. Belch used to charge like uh, yeah. hundreds of dollars practically yeah. for this kind of equipment. Never and not only that, they're they're coming up with with cordless. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. the cordless telephones are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And if you think, you know, if they let that go yeah. a long time ago, we probably wouldn't have cable troubles. They yeah. would have had transmitters in neighborhoods. Yeah. And you know, I've heard people complain about uh, about well, I mean, then people would be monitoring the the telephone messages. But think. <laughs> about, about, uh, about, let's say, a telephone. They don't really have telephone lines generally from, let's say, London, Ontario to Toronto. They have microwave transmitters. Mm -hmm. And I know people who have set up equipment so that they can monitor the yeah. microwave transmitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were not really, uh, yeah. uh, that's, I think, one of the easiest things to, to convince people I found uh, is, right. is that you're really not protected. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, the mobile telephone. You get the city of Toronto, you've got three channels. There's two other people in the city that want to talk on their car phone. Yeah. You don't get on. Yeah. And now they open it up and the cellular radio is supposed to be here in a year or so. Mm -hmm. Every single person in Toronto could have a mobile phone. Yeah. It's still wouldn't crowd the thing out. Yeah. And less money, of course. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Super. Yeah, the whole data interconnect industry is a feature of that. Allowing competition. The other thing about monopolies, though, and particularly in the area of what people consider to be natural mm -hmm. monopolies like that, you wouldn't want to string all those lines, mm -hmm. and if they didn't want to cooperate, they couldn't share the cable, is that we're thinking about telephones in a conventional sense as opposed to means of communication mm -hmm. in a broader right. sense, right. and means of communication as opposed to food, shelter, yeah. or all the other choices in the market. Does when In Austrian economics, is that addressed sufficiently? That, that there's no such thing as a monopoly for your dollars. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, we're the only ones who stress it because the, everybody else again, again, this goes back to the whole discussion we had about what's a good. The uh, antitrust uh, economists would say, well, uh, <clears throat> you look at the industry. Industry consists of five firms, it's uh, gear shifts or whatever. And the terrible thing: the only five firms, five firms are producing 80 percent of the gear shifts. Therefore, they're not letting break them up. If you widen the definition of what you know, what the thing, what the use is, you have all sorts of different uh, two thousand firms. The concentration ratio is much lower, so it all depends on how narrow you make the concentration. You know, the so-called concentration ratio is one of the big things in antitrust people. It's a terrible thing for five firms or the top three firms or whatever to have more than an extra cent of the, you know, it's arbitrarily arbitrary of the sales. And simply, yeah, you know, just widen or narrow the definition of what the, what the good is. And make a very narrow good. You can have, I mean, for example, I mean, of course, Wonder Bread is a total monopoly on Wonder Bread. Nobody else can produce Wonder Bread. Anybody else who does it is interfering with the property rights. Right? So break it up. So Wonder Bread is 100% of the bread market, Wonder Bread market. However, it's <laughs> pretty sad. It's a monstrous thing. Then if you stretch it a little bit to white bread, you got a whole bunch of stuff. Then you can stretch it more to rye and pumpernickel and rolls and bagels. <laughs> you know? So the concentration is purely a result of your, your definition of an economist. And they all compete, of course, everything competes with the consumer dollar. Well, for example, on vacation, there's a vacation market okay, for people going on vacation. 
Hotels compete with each other. They also compete with other hotels. They also compete with yacht cruises, Caribbean cruises. They also compete with airlines, travel to other places. There's a whole bunch of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. A whole bunch of stuff that's competing in that, competing with driving, you know, hotel trips, and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, so the, that's, that's one of the insights. The insights of the Australians. So, uh, I should say something also about cartels. Something mentioned about uh, cartels, I think, getting together. Uh, the uh, generally, I think it's a general truth. This I think is accepted by other free market people in Austria. Is that cartels don't work on, a, on a, except a, except a government intervention. It cannot cannot survive uh, on a free market. And for two basic reasons, having a bunch of people getting together. I'm a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, is a coin dealer. He said, every once in a while, lots of coin dealers, every once in a while, coin dealers get together and say, let's jack up the price, and let's, you know, let's agree, and so forth and so on. And he says, somebody, somebody always breaks the agreement. <laughs> somebody goes out there and cuts price by 10% in order to pick up sales, or the other suckers, and haven't cut the price. And you're back to the race, he says. Constantly happens. And uh, I venture to say, there's not a single cartel in the history of the world which existed in the free market for any length of time. Constantly breaking down. Uh, either because the internal firms um, tremendous pressure now. Let's say they have to cut production in order to raise price. They won't agree to that. It's not a difficult thing. They agree, okay, well, we'll cut production by 10%, cut freight shipments, or whatever it happens to be. We'll agree to this, and, and we'll raise the price by 20%, and we'll be better off. Okay. And so what happens then is everybody sits there and says, if I can secretly cut the price, okay, I can pick up an enormous amount, because it's now 20% higher than the old, old price got place. Fantastic. They, secret, they start secret price cutting. And one of the interesting things, one of the first things was the Clayton Act, the Antitrust Act outlawed the secret price cutting. In the name of enforcing competition. It's never have anything secret. Everything's got to be public. Of course, that means you can't break the cartel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's unfair competition. Yeah, it's unfair competition secretly price cut. Secret price cutting is a magnificent way by which the market smashes the cartel. In that equation, though, in, in a free market, yeah. companies could get to, yeah. together and form a company, sure. and then the contracts they make should yeah. be upheld by law. But as long as they don't have the ability yeah. to forbid new yeah. entries into the market, sure. someone else will step in, too. Mm. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, it kind, of, it's kind of incredible that, that I think it's the Canadian government that's complaining about law is being dumped on the Canadian market. I wonder who's really complaining about law is being dumped on the Canadian market. <laughs> Bill, Bill David, no, no. It might be another incident, but Bill Davis is telling people not to buy lottery mm. these yeah. days. And I don't think he's getting lottery. Never any like that. Never once. Every now and again, someone starts complaining about the Japanese dumping sand. Yeah, to a Japanese. But I figure if the Japanese can make steel cheaper, then we should buy it. Or we can make steel cheaper too. I mean, what is the supernatural? Yeah. They got more. What they got is modern, computerized equipment. They have old steel mills. Yeah. Right. That's the problem. I think it'd be a great thing if all the foreign countries decide to give 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 us everything free, undercut our market products, and we get all this stuff free. It'd be magnificent, and nobody have to work. I'm willing to wait for the, for the short period of time to see what happens. That's another thing. One, 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 I remember back in the 50s when the German, Germany had compulsory cartel. Germany pioneered the welfare state, the warfare state, under Bismarck and everything else. And it pioneered the compulsory cartel. Every, every steel firm was forced to join a steel cartel, etc. Restrict production, raise price, have a high tariff to keep them out. So after World War II, the Earhart regime uh, eliminated that, and 
eliminate compulsory cartels. So the argument of the old cartels was this, I get this, they said we need compulsory cartels, because we don't have compulsory cartels, and one big firm will then take over and out-compete everybody, drive everybody to the wall, and be monopolistic. Right? So in other words, what they were saying is, let's, see, let's just even assume that happens. Let's say one big steel firm finally emerges after 20 years and they're more efficient. But what the cartelist is saying is we have to crush uh, efficient, we have to have imposed cartels, but we have to worry about possible future efficient monopolies and impose instead, in order to guard against that, impose inefficient compulsory monopolies right now. That's the argument. Totally insane. I mean, why, I mean, I can see, why anybody would fall for that argument? It just beats, beats me. Well, the biggest example of proof of the efficiency right. of competition is my watch here. You know, I mean, the same as everyone else is watching the room. It's got a computer inside it that's more powerful than the first uh, electronic computer produced by IBM back in 1950 or whatever it was. It cost a million dollars. Fantastic. And the chip in yeah. here is, you know, cost one yeah. a buck. Yeah, I think so. Who's about that? Yeah. That's great. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and yet, if you get to reduce. Pardon? How much does it cost to reduce? That's the amazing thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the amount of competition there is, I yeah. mean, there's calculators for what, 10 bucks now? Less. And the slide rule used to cost that much, yeah. which is yeah. a piece of wood with some marks on it. Right, right. <laughs> That's what a slide rule is. <coughs> you remember the old calculator? remember the old calculating machine. When I was going to college, they had these massive calculating machines. Frieden, I think, one, and Burroughs, whatever. Yeah, Monroe. Yeah, you'd be pounding away in this thing, and then <laughs> only slightly faster than your own you know, pen and pencil. <laughs> you know what you said about the uh, yearly four function calculators costing 400 bucks? Yeah. yeah. And when I first saw one, I was I bought one, and I bought one. I only paid 100 bucks for one, I figured out a smart and original price. Mm -hmm. okay. so I, I went to Simpsons, which is just about a mile from here, and I bought it in the, uh, this room. And I bought him this uh, room full of calculators and IE machines. And the guy who sold it to me, the salesman, I'll never forget this. He figured out the sales tax on a paper bag. Mm -hmm. A room full of calculators. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. The old and tried, true way. It's just like that old uh, comic strip that will do it every time. Yeah, <laughs> right. Is this true that a Macus can beat a computer? And they used to say a Macus could beat. Calculator. Calculator. Can you get a calculator? Really? Yeah, I saw that on some TV show. It lost the division, but it beat the whole thing. But that's, that is matching the top operator yeah. in one way right. to the right. average right. operator in right. another, generally. Right. So I used to do competitions like that right. the old comptometer against electronic calculators. But once people get good at operating, they can beat up. Mary used to work for Victor, by the way, so she's got a nice I heard you say Victor. What's a comptometer? Comptometer is a, a full keyboard machine. Mm -hmm. It's an adding machine. Yeah. With no functions in it except adding. Yeah, that's but you but you learn to add, subtract, multiply, and divide yeah. by adding. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think it was like, yeah. And I, oh, yeah, I mean, the comptometer old, operators right. used to just practically the corner the market on, on <laughs> um, doing audits and things like that. Right. Talking about talking about competition is I was just looking because I can't find it. Anyone remember that cartoon at the back of Reason? Must have been about a year or so ago about the antitrust people, you know, and in their office they were saying, well, we've broken up all the, all the big companies, what's there to do? Go out of business, don't be silly, go look for some more monopolies. <laughs> and so they look for a market on the corner, they right. see this little sort of grocery store on the corner say, that's a market on the corner, and that's got a corner on the market. It's a monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> so they broke it up, so there's Mama's grocery store, Papa's grocery store next door to each other, and the last frame of it, is is a couple from a socialist company coming on looking at it and saying, 
how wasteful do the groceries go to each other? It could be an efficiency of the captains. Actually, we can break and unless there's something else you want to cover. I think this is the last last chunk of of this uh, mammoth seminar. And a lot of people ask me, well, am I going to cover this, that, and the other thing? I think maybe I'm going to probably get the opinion of the people here. What topics would you like to have covered? There's all sorts of topics that's sort of a macro area. Yeah. Business cycles. Right. Well, Inflation? Likely scenarios over the next five to ten years. How do I commend it in the commodity market? I've only got a seminar for you. Yeah, it's a different seminar. Somebody else. Somebody answer on unemployment. Can you uh, can you discuss uh, uh, the uh, printing of money? Yeah, that would be inflation. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, just alternatives to to Alternatives to printing money. Nice supply. I have a new book that just came out, by the way, which I strongly recommend, <laughs> called The Mystery of Banking, which is published by Richardson and Snyder, distributed through Dutton. Okay, so that's, you can get it from Dutton. Um, uh, Liberty Library, we'll have it available. Liberty Library, great. <laughs> Super. He, he was staring me down there. Where, where's your sales? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. I think it doesn't like the same stuff in there. Unemployment and depression. The failure of the plan problem. Okay. Oh, thank you. Take one of the interesting things is the history of business cycle, how this thing starts. There's an interesting book by Wesley Mitchell, which I don't endorse, but there's some interesting stuff in there called. Business cycle of a problem in a setting it came out in 1927. Uh, and talked about, reported on another investigation by an English economic historian named W.R. Scott. And Scott went back, way back to the 16th century, 15th century, looked at business annals. In other words, went to all the <coughs> financial pages and memoirs and whatever, trying to figure out the state of business activity. What was, was, was things depressed or they prosperous or whatever? Essentially, he found something like this. <coughs> oh, there it is. Okay, essentially, he found something like this. Business system, the market activity, there were markets that were much more limited than they came later. Okay, so fine then. But something like that, it go along an even keel, and then something would happen. The king confiscated half the gold in the kingdom, so it's a big depression. Or as a war, and so it's a big stimulus, or more cuts off trade, and big depression, something like that. So what you have are <clears throat> isolated instances where something happens to the business activity, where it's clear to everybody what the cause was. Almost always the government, right? War, or sometimes a famine, or something like that. Mostly the king confiscates. Kings often confiscated money because they didn't have much money; they confiscated it. So. There was no business cycle. It was things sort of pegged along more or less evenly, and then suddenly something happened. But these are exogenous causes. It's called. In other words, outside the market. So these were 
these were not anything cyclical, not, not anything that seems to come from within the market, nothing scary in the sense of how come this is happening. <coughs> then around 1750, to be very, very vague about it, <coughs> Starting really in England and continuing then spreading the United States later in that uh, late 19th, late 18th century, early 19th in Western Europe, there began to be curious situations of regular type wave like fluctuations of business activity. Something like this. And, uh, and this is peculiar because there didn't seem to be any specific cause which you can identify and say, okay, this is due to the war, this is due to the king confiscated something. This is Due to a famine or a drought, that <clears throat> seemed to come from within the, the business and market system. Uh, and two things happened at the same time: two mighty, mighty institutional changes. One, the Industrial Revolution. So there's around the mid 18th century, so that the market economy spreads and you have industrialization. <clears throat> and at the same time, the banking system pops up, fractional reserve banking system. Uh, starting with the Bank of England in 1690 and then spreading to other countries in the mid 18th century. So, in other words, the rise of the banking system uh, starts at about the same time as the Industrial Revolution. And ever since then, those economists who try to investigate the causes of the business cycle, why is this, break down in two different broad schools of thought those who blame the market economy and or the Industrial Revolution, and those who blame the banking system. Both coincidentally, this is one of the problems of correlation not just not, does not prove causation. Three things happen at the same time, it could be one or the other or both or neither, whatever. So these are the broad, uh, there's those who blame the industrial market economy, <coughs> those who blame the banks, money, money and banking. Now within the industrial market economy, there also is a different subdivisions and, and uh, etc. Uh, one of the first ones is the famous sunspot theory, which uh, Stanley Jevons, a distinguished economist in micro field, stubbed his tail on the micro field. The theory was that, the, um, that in those days, the theory was a big crisis. People were really worried about the crisis. They weren't worried about the boom, they were worried about the crisis. Why did a sudden collapse? collapse Credit, perhaps with banks, uh, prices fall, unemployment occurs, bankruptcy, etc., etc. So it was a theory at one point that every nine and a half years or something, this thing pops up, pricey, and therefore it must be due to sunspots, 